Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, the book of Acts, chapters 11 and 12. Acts chapter 11 explains that after the incident with Cornelius and his household when the Holy Spirit fell upon them in a Pentecost-like event upon this group of Gentiles, that Peter went back to Jerusalem where he faced this barrage of questioning and skepticism by the believers. They were indignant that Peter, as their leader, would actually not only consort with a Roman army officer, but even have the bad judgment to go into the home of a Gentile. The issue for them was that, first of all, Gentiles were the oppressors of the Jews. Second, everybody knew that Gentiles were ritually unclean. And thus, by going into the home of this Roman centurion... Peter, the leader of the way, had knowingly defiled himself. But third, why would Peter think to want to deliver salvation and the fruit of the Holy Spirit to non-Jews? So far as they were concerned, or they knew, salvation was more than merely a uniquely Jewish concept. It was only available to Jews. Now we've spent several weeks now discussing perhaps the most universal and central tenet of Jewish society and that is ritual purity. It crossed all the lines of Jewish factionalism. It didn't matter whether you were a Hellenist Jew or a Hebrew Jew, a believer, a Pharisee, an Essen, a Sadducee. It didn't matter whether you lived at the religious center of the world, Jerusalem, or in a small community far away in the diaspora where Jews were a minority. Ritual purity was the goal, the symbol, the cause for how Jews lived and Gentiles represented the antithesis of it. Now Peter's only possible defense was to relate to his fellow believers these astounding events that led him to make this equally astounding decision. So the first half of Acts chapter 11 is dedicated to essentially retelling the story of Peter's vision of that sheet full of animals and and his relating to the strange instruction from God to kill and eat. And then of his realization that the vision was a parable and it had not to do with the ritual purity of food, but rather the ritual purity or impurity of Gentiles. And that he was telling these Gentiles the gospel of Yeshua when his speech was interrupted by the coming of the Holy Spirit upon these same Gentiles who did exactly as all the Jewish believers in Jerusalem had done on that first Shavuot after Yeshua's death and resurrection, they began praising God and speaking ecstatically in languages they didn't know. And thus, what exactly was Peter supposed to do and think 
especially when he remembered that their master Yeshua had told them that while Yochanan, John the baptizer, used to immerse people in water, that we, they, will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. At this point, the believer saw that Peter had indeed made his case. He had no choice in what he did because the Lord had instigated it. So in the best spirit they could muster, they quit questioning Peter and his motives and instead they began to praise God, agreeing that while it might make no sense to them, the Lord has chosen to allow Gentiles into the fold. However, as I mentioned last week, that in no way meant to them that this issue of ritual purity between Jews and Gentiles was now resolved. The, 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 uh, thus we see in, in this chapter that our author Luke is informing us of this subgroup within the way that on the one hand grudgingly accepted that Gentiles could receive salvation but on the other that merely meant to them that the next step was for these new Gentile believers to be circumcised and thus officially become Jews. It seemed completely logical. After all, many Gentiles had become God-fearers. That is, they gave up their Greek gods and started worshipping the God of Israel. However, they remained Gentiles. Therefore, obviously it was that Jehovah had seen fit to take these God-fearers to another level by means of salvation and the Holy Spirit and make them Jews. All that remained then was for the circumcision ceremony to formalize their conversion. With that, let's reread the last few verses of Acts chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 19. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's on page 1376. Acts uh, chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered because of the persecution which had arisen over Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They spoke God's words, but only to Jews. However, some of these men, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they arrived at Antioch, they began speaking to the Greeks too, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Yeshua. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people trusted and turned to the Lord. Now news of this reached the ears of the Messianic community in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch and on arriving and seeing for himself the grace of God at work he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their whole hearts for he was a good man full of the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy Spirit and trust. Then Barnabas went off to Tarsus to look for Shaul for Saul and he found him and he brought him to Antioch and they met with the congregation there for a whole year and taught a sizable crowd also it was in Antioch that the Talmudim that is the disciples for the first time were called Messianic 
And during this time, some prophets came down from Yerushalayim to Antioch. One of them, uh, and one of them named Agav stood up and through the Spirit predicted that there was going to be a severe famine throughout the Roman Empire. It took place while Claudius was emperor. So the disciples decided to provide relief to the brothers living in Judah, each according to his means, and they did it, sending their contribution to the elders in the care of Barnabas and Shaul, Paul. For the moment then, the believing Jews of Jerusalem have accepted Peter's explanation, and although not entirely settled about this matter of Gentiles becoming believers, they've put it to bed for the time being. So Luke now transitions to a different issue. That of those many Jewish believers who had fled Jerusalem on account of the persecutions that arose against them after Stephen had been stoned to death. However, as we look back in history, what is really happening is that we are learning how the good news was spread to foreign lands. And unfortunately, the God pattern seems to be that the gospel spreads best when the believing community is undergoing tribulation. Sorry about that, but that's how it is. I see nothing in modern times that indicates that this pattern has changed. Verse 19 says that these Jewish believers from Jerusalem had traveled as far away as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch to escape persecution. Now Phoenicia, you can look on this map here, Phoenicia was a seafaring people whose main source of income was shipping. They were located on a thin strip of land to the north of the Holy Land. There had been for centuries generally good relations between Phoenicia and Israel. Others went to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. And there were a number of Jewish colonies in Cyprus as it provided a key harbor in the shipping lanes. In fact, the Barnabas, Barnabas, whose name is mentioned often in the book of Acts, originally came from one of the several Jewish colonies of Cyprus. Antioch also goes by the name Antioch of the Orontes. Now, Antioch was named after the hated Syrian governor Antiochus Epiphanes. It was another place where sizable colonies of Jews had settled for centuries. So the fleeing believers, of course, went to the places where they had relatives or perhaps close friends who would offer them shelter. In fact, Antioch and Jerusalem were bound quite closely together. And there was frequent travel between those two cities such that the Jewish residents of each city had an unusual comfort level with one another. Now it ought to be no surprise then what we are explicitly told that these Jewish believers from Jerusalem took the gospel message only to fellow Jews who were living in these foreign Jewish enclaves. Now verse 20 tells us that certain men from the, uh, the island of Cyprus and from the North African province of Cyrenica, which is modern-day Libya, 
also traveled to Antioch to teach about Yeshua. Now they were, of course, Jewish believers. But they weren't among those who had fled from Jerusalem. So there was a great deal of evangelism that was being directed at Antioch because there was a great deal of Jews living there. But we're told, interestingly, that these believing Jews also took the good news to the Greeks, that is, to Gentiles. Had they heard about Peter's adventure with Cornelius already? Unlikely. They apparently figured out for themselves that if Gentiles in substantial numbers were accepting the God of Israel, that they just might also be open to accepting the Messiah of Israel. So while Paul is God's designated point man for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, by no means was he in charge of the mission to the Gentiles. Nor was he the only believer whom the Holy Spirit had moved to present Gentiles with the good news. Now let me also point out something that is good for Bible students to know about the choice of words that's used here in verse 20. See, here it says that believers from Cyprus and Cyrene spoke about Yeshua to who? To the Greeks, it says. Now we've talked on numerous occasions about the Hellenists. Now Hellenists are first and foremost Greek speakers. But second, they have to one level or another taken on Greek culture as their way of life. That's a Hellenist. However, in the New Testament... Whenever we hear about Hellenists, it's only speaking about Hellenist Jews. Jews who have taken on the Greek lifestyle, speak Greek as their first language. In some cases, they've even accepted Yeshua. So the terms Hellenist Jew, Hellenist believer, and Hellenists, they all mean the same thing. Greek-speaking Jews, some of whom became followers, followers of Yeshua. But when the intention is to refer to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire, who speak Greek and live the regular Roman Greek lifestyle, then the term that the New Testament uses is Greeks rather than Hellenists. You with me? Pays to know who we're talking about when these terms come up. Now the leadership of the way in Jerusalem heard about a great number of Greeks, Gentiles, accepting the Lord. And they decided to send Barnabas, Barnaba, to Antioch to investigate. And the news, see, would have caught them completely unaware. It's likely that most, if not all, of these Gentile success stories were already God-fearers. So that made the task a little bit easier since these God-fearers already had a basis for understanding what the believers would tell them about Messiah Yeshua. And equally likely, the Gentile God-fearers of Antioch were already being allowed some sort of limited access to the synagogues. Even though the ultra-pious Jews of Jerusalem would have been quite against such a thing. 
Now what we're seeing here in Antioch is a scale of evangelism to both Gentiles and Jews that was without precedent. Now Barnabas lent a needed credibility to the movement in Antioch as he was an official representative of the apostles, the leadership. And true to his name, Barnabas, he encouraged the new believers to stay the course to give their entire selves to their newfound faith in Yeshua. But let's be clear. By God's grace, Barnabas was the perfect man for the job. Being originally a diaspora Jew from Cyprus, but now having lived in Jerusalem for some number of years, he could more easily relate to the diaspora Jews of Antioch and he was not so allergic to Gentiles as were his Jerusalem born and raised counterparts. See, Jerusalem Jews, these were the politically correct ultra-Orthodox Jews of that era and they had little tolerance for anything outside of whatever halakha they had grown up under. They were more rigid Whereas the Diaspora Jews were more flexible. And since the way was still a movement in its infancy at this point, so the complicated matter of also beginning to include Gentiles into what had always been thought was simply a a, a recent and alternative sect within Judaism, well, this was going to require an open-mindedness not typical of the Jerusalem Jews. Now, I'm so grateful for Luke's characterization of Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and trust, because only with these attributes was he and are we able to recognize God's grace in action such that it can shape our decisions and change our minds over doctrines and traditions that we at one time held on to so dearly but now some of them need to be rethought. Rabbi Shulam unearthed a most wonderful passage found in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. A place I've taken many of you to. This passage is taken from scroll 1QS The one, so you understand how this works, the one indicates which of the several caves at Qumran it was found in. The Q indicates Qumran. And the S indicates the type of document and its name. In this case, it's the document of community rules. In other words, it's not scripture. A document that has given us much insight into the philosophy and behavior and lifestyle of the essence, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So please listen carefully to these beautiful and inspiring words that I pray we would all regularly recall and keep it near to our hearts. Listen to this. As for me, to God belongs my judgment. In His hand is the perfection of my behavior with the uprightness of my heart. And with His just acts, He cancels my iniquities. If I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my salvation always. And if I fall in the sin of the flesh, 
In the justice of God, which endures eternally, shall my judgment be. If my distress commences, he'll free my soul from the pit. He'll make my steps ready on the path. He'll draw me near in his mercies and by his kindness set in motion my judgment. He will judge me in the justice of his truth and in his plentiful goodness always atone for my sins. In his justice he will cleanse me from all the uncleanness of the human being from the sin of the sons of man so that I can give God thanks for his justice and the highest for his mercy. Is that not a great thought? Again, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls written by the essence. There is no better description of the purpose and the essence of Yeshua our Messiah and how we're to respond to Him than what we just heard. I mean, it is no wonder that as we examine some of Yeshua's New Testament statements and terms that we find them expressed at times similarly at other times identically in the Dead Sea Scrolls such that the evidence mounts that Yeshua assuredly spent much time with the essence who saw each other as kindred spirits. Verse 25 has Barnabas, for some unstated reason, heading off to Tarsus in search for Paul. Now Tarsus was about a hundred miles north of Antioch, so this was no small journey. For whatever reason, he brought Paul back with him to Antioch. Now the passage says that Paul and Barnabas, not just Paul, met with the congregation, meaning the believers, and taught a sizable number of them for about a year. Now, probably Barnabas understood that God had ordained Paul as his special emissary to the Gentiles. So it seemed appropriate that Paul would be included in the evangelizing and maturing of the congregation in Antioch. But then in verse 26, we're told this. Also it was in Antioch that the Talmudim, the disciples, for the first time were called Messianic, or more familiar to our ears, as you would find it, say, in the Revised Standard Version. And in Antioch, the disciples were the fir- for the first time called Christians. Now this is a very famous statement that we're going to take a few minutes to examine. It tells us that it was in Antioch of Syria that the way was first given a different label by the Greek-speaking diaspora Jews and Gentiles different than what they were known as in the Holy Land. And the complete Jewish Bible says that new name was Messianics, but virtually all other English translations will say Christians. This is a complicated, but it's an important matter. And an explanation is needed to put this in the proper context and to help reunite a centuries-old divide. The reason I want to address this is this. It's either said or it's implied in institutional Christianity that it is an Antioch where Gentile Christianity was born. The idea being 
that it was in Antioch where Messianic Jews went one way and Gentile Christians went another way. While indeed that did eventually happen, it didn't happen during the New Testament era. And it certainly didn't occur in Acts 11.26 in Antioch. But the reason that it appears so is mostly one of language translation issues, but also of semantics. So please give me your best focus here for a few minutes so I can explain this to you. It's important because what we see here in verse 26 has had an enormous negative impact on Jewish-Christian relations. The question is this. Does the word Christians actually even appear here? And if the word is not Christians, what is it? And why do all English Bibles insert the word Christians in verse 26? Let me begin by explaining that as more and more people are beginning to understand, our Messiah was not called Jesus at the time of his birth. Because Jesus is an English word and English wasn't even invented until centuries and centuries later. Because he was a Hebrew, he was naturally given a Hebrew name at birth and that name was Yeshua. However, in Greek, his name translates to Aesus. Aesus. That is, in Greek, it's a three-syllable word, Aesus, just as his Hebrew name, Yeshua, is a three-syllable word. It is simply the normal way of language and language translation that a name in one language can sound quite different in another language. That English says Jesus, a two-syllable word, is a great example of how it can differ. Now, the words Messiah and Messianic are English sound-alike renditions of the Hebrew word Mashiach. But they're not actual translations. They're just sound-alike. Because the actual English translation of Mashiach is anointed one. Anointed one. That's the translation of the word. The word Christian is really just another English sound-alike rendition of the Greek word Christianoi. Christianoi. It's a sound-alike. It's not a translation of the word. Since the New Testament was written in Greek, then we must understand that Christianoi is but the Greek translation variation of the Hebrew root word Mashiach. It's all it's doing. It's all it's translating. This fact creates some serious theological, doctrinal, and historical difficulties for us. Because to the ears of non-Jews, it seems as though when we read Acts 11.26, a new religion, Christianity, was in the process of being formed in Antioch and its members were called Christians because they were named after their master, Christ. And they were separate from the way that was being led by Jews. 
So it's then assumed, or taught outright, that beginning at Antioch, Gentile Christians separated themselves, they began attending churches, while Messianic Jews attended synagogues. And when this happened, some Jewish believers labeled as Judaizers popped up. And they tried to stop this separation of Gentile believers and instead draw them back to Judaism. That's pretty much the story. Except none of this is accurate. Much of it's due simply to translation errors. Even more to cultural misunderstandings. Here is the reality. When a Greek-speaking Jewish believer talked to other Greek speakers, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, then of course, what language did he use? Greek. That's his language. So, he would use the Greek word Christos. Christos. When talking about Messiah Yeshua. Why did he say Christos? Because Christos was the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's that simple. This Christos now, see, this does not properly translate to to the English word Christ as it's normally taken. In recognition of this fact, some of the newer English Bible versions, such as the ESV, for example, is trying to rectify this by inserting the word the before the word Christ. The Christ. That is, instead of saying Jesus Christ now, some of these newer English versions finally will get it right. And they will say Jesus the Christ. Why do you do that? See, Christos is not a proper name. Rather, it just translates literally, Greek Christos, in English means anointed one. Why? Because it's translating Mashiach in Hebrew, which means anointed one. Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first and last name, like Tom Bradford. Let me say this in another way to try and help you. If I take the English word Christ, okay, and I want to say it in Greek, there's no Greek word for it. If I want to take the English word Christ and translate it into Hebrew, there's no Hebrew word for it. But if I want to translate the English words anointed one into Greek, there is a Greek word for it. Christos. If I want to translate this English word anointed one into Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word for it. Mashiach. Anointed one equals Mashiach equals Christos, not Christ. All Greek Bible manuscripts, all, use the word Christos when speaking about Yeshua. Not as his name. Rather, it's indicative of the position he holds. And his position is, he is the anointed one. You with me? A little complicated, isn't it? What has happened is, 
that unfortunately, when the Greek Christos was given an English rendition as Christ, rather than now Christ simply meaning anointed one, at some undefined point in history, in the history of the Gentile church, the term Christ turned from being an office that Yeshua held, the office of the anointed one, and it became his proper name. It is fascinating that even the secular Wikipedia fully acknowledges this. By way of example, we've done exactly the same thing with the word God. We've mistakenly made God to be God's name. God's name is not God. God is actually an office or a title. God's name is Yehovah or Yahweh, however you wish to pronounce it. Somehow, along the way, Christ became Jesus' new or alternate name. It would be as though President Obama's name suddenly just became president. And a hundred years from now, whenever anybody said president... It was taken to mean Mr. Obama's personal name. Or it would be as though Pastor Billy Graham's name suddenly became merely Pastor. So a hundred years from now, when anybody talked about being a fan of Pastor, who was being talked about is Billy Graham, and nobody would ask which Pastor. Once again, Christ is not Yeshua's name. The word Christ has become, over time, a misnomer. And this has led to all sorts of religious aberrations, including misunderstanding Acts 11.26. Now as hard as this is to wrap our heads around, virtually everywhere in the New Testament that we find the word Christ, which is an English word, it is technically incorrect or probably better to say it's misleading. It should say anointed one. So if we were to go through our Bibles and cross out the word Christ and replace it with the anointed one, then we'd have the true meaning of the Greek and of the Hebrew. And as I mentioned, some newer Bibles have added the word the before the word Christ to help the reader understand that Christ is meant to be an office, not a name. Thus, Gentile Christianity has substituted a proper name, Christ, for an office, anointed one. And since anointed one is a purely Hebrew, biblical concept, by avoiding saying anointed one, it has only served to sever Yeshua away from his historical culture and his identification and excuse the old rather the New Testament to seem to be a document and a religion made for Gentiles while the Old Testament's a document and a religion made for Jews that's been the effect of it further it has caused us to have to separate the use of and give different definitions to two terms they really mean the same thing. We're just using different languages. But in fact, these terms, Christian and Messianic, are perceived and used as very different from one another. Each group is a little bit suspicious of the other one. 
not entirely sure they believed the same things. In fact, because of the language issue, Messianic is a label that Jewish believers in Yeshua tend to call themselves and a Christian is a label that Gentile believers in Yeshua tend to call themselves. And to maintain this illusion of separation, each group has given their religious leaders different titles. Rabbis versus pastors. They call their Messiah different names. Yeshua versus Jesus. See, this needless division and misunderstanding all came about mostly due to language barriers and some human agendas. But it has also created this disastrous wall of separation between Jews and Christians for centuries. That's going to take a lot of explanation, just like what I'm giving to you right now, to try and walk this thing back and create a different mental image when we use those terms. So as it pertains to our lesson today, the bottom line is this. At the time we are reading about in Acts, when a Greek term was coined to indicate a follower of Yeshua, Christianoi, that term was not Christians as we find it written in most Bibles, especially in the sense we think of it today. Christianoi was simply a Greek term that meant followers of the Holy, uh, rather of the Anointed One. Followers of the Anointed One. That's all it meant. This is a term that Jews of that era would have had no issue with. Since they of course understood that Greek speakers wouldn't use Hebrew words to speak about Yeshua. They'd use Greek words. And that this Greek term Christos did not effectively rename Yeshua to Christ. Now remember, once again, the Greek name for Christ, and there is one, is Iesus. Iesus. This renaming and misuse of the Greek word Christos occurred perhaps a century or more later when Gentiles finally wrested control of the Yeshua movement away from the Jews. And an agenda arose of making belief in Yeshua a Gentiles-only religion. Greek Christos then, because one of the languages spoken throughout the Roman Empire was Latin, Greek Christos became Latin Christus. Christus seems to have been mischaracterized as a proper name. And then from Latin to English, the word became Christ, and thus Christians became a label for Gentile followers of the supposedly new religion that was created by a man named Christ. That's how it happened. So, now we have the reason that Jews scoff at this notion of becoming Christians. And it also mischaracterizes what's going on here in Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 is not the birth of Christianity. Rather, what we're seeing is that when enough Gentiles and Jews, all Greek speakers, in Antioch came to trust in Yeshua that they coined a label in their own Greek language for their group. Christianoi. 
And the closest English words we could use, most literally, to accurately translate the Greek word and bring us to the intended sense of Acts 11.26 would be something like the anointed one-ites. No wonder we don't use it. So perhaps the prime reason for Jewish believers and Gentile believers eventually separating into distinctly different religious organizations was essentially a mirage that was caused by language barriers. Well, let's move on. Verse 27 might be more important to what comes next in Acts chapter 12 than meets the eye. Because it tells us of a prophet who prophesied that a famine was coming throughout the Roman Empire. Now, it is possible, it's not certain, that this famine will explain some of the actions of Herod in Acts chapter 12. Well, this prophet was named Agav. In Hebrew, that means grasshopper. And the implication is that this prophet was a member of the way. He was a believer. That is why when he brought his prophetic message of this coming famine to the disciples, they believed him. And as a result, the disciples determined to provide relief, to provide charity to their believing brethren back in Judah. They would collect the donations, send them with Barnabas and Paul to the Holy Land for distribution. Now we are told that this this famine actually did come about during the time of Claudius, as predicted. Claudius was made emperor of Rome in 41 AD at about the same time that Herod Agrippa was made king of Judah. In fact, these two men were friends and companions early in life when Agrippa, as a young child, was sent to Rome by his father to be educated in the ways of the Greeks. Now, this further explains how Herod Agrippa was made a king and given Judah to reign over. Now, we're going to discuss this more thoroughly in our study of Acts chapter 12, but let's, let's go there right now. Let's go to Acts chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, page 1376, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Acts chapter 12. Now it was around this time that King Herod began arresting and persecuting certain members of the Messianic community and he had Yaakov, that's Jacob, uh, Jacob usually shows up James, some of our Bibles, uh, Yochanan's, that's John's brother, put to death by the sword. And when Herod saw how much this pleased the Judeans, he went on to arrest Kepha, that's Peter, as well. Now it was during the days of Matzah, so when Herod seized him, he threw him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers east with the intention of bringing him to public trial after Pesach, after Passover. So Kepha was being held under watch in prison, but intense prayer was being made to God on his behalf by the Messianic community. Now the night before Herod was going to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers and he was bound with two chains and guards were at the door keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of Adonai stood there and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Kepha's side and he woke him. He said, hurry, get up. He said, and the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And he did. Throw on your robe, he said, follow me. And going out, 
Peter followed him but did not realize that what was happening through the angel was real. He thought he was having a vision. Having passed a first guard and a second, they arrived at the iron gate leading to the city and this this opened to them by itself and they made their exit. They went down the length of one street and suddenly the angel left him. Then Kepha came to himself and said, Now I know for sure that the Lord sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's power and from everything the Judean people were hoping for. Realizing what had happened, he went to the house of Miriam, the mother of Yochanan, John, surnamed Mark, where many people had gathered to pray. And he knocked on the outside door and a servant named Rhoda came to the answer and she recognized Peter's voice. She was so happy, she ran back in without opening the door and announced that Kepha was standing outside. You're out of your mind, they said to her. But she insisted it was true. So they said, that's his angel. Well, meanwhile, Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed and motioning to them with his hand to be quiet. He told them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, tell this to Yaakov, again, James in most English Bibles, and the brothers. And then he left and went elsewhere. And when daylight came, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become Peter. Herod had a thorough search made for him, but they failed to find him, so he cross-examined the guards and ordered them put to death. And then Herod went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Zor and Sidon. So they joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, the king's chief personal servant, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's land for their food supply. A day was set and Herod in his royal robe sat on the throne and made a speech to them. And the mob cried out, Oh, this is the voice of a god, not a man. At once... Because Herod did not give the glory to God, an angel of Adonai struck him down and he was eaten away by worms and he died. But the word of the Lord went on growing and being multiplied. Barnabas and Shaul, having completed their errand, returned from Jerusalem, bringing with them Yochanan, John, surnamed Mark. John Mark. This chapter revolves around the activities of King Herod Agrippa. Now you see, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, who had ruled in the years leading up to the birth of Yeshua. Now there was no king over Judah after the death of Herod the Great in about 1 BC until King Herod Agrippa was coronated by Emperor Claudius in 41 AD. So 40 years or so after the death of Herod the Great, um, it was 40 years or so before we had a, 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 a king over Judah. Instead, it was a series in the interim of Roman procurators that ruled over Judah and the Holy Lands. Now, Agrippa was considered to be a Jew, even though genealogically, He was just as his grandfather Herod the Great was. He was of Idumean and Nabataean roots. Idumea was formerly Edom. And the people there were descended from the line of Esau. Herod the Great's mother was Nabataean. In other words, she came from the line of Ishmael. So while Herod the Great was a Semite... There was no Hebrew blood in him at all. All Therefore, no Jewish connection. 
The same went for his grandson, Herod Agrippa. However, this fiction of his Jewishness was useful because the Jewish people convinced themselves, ah, now we have a Jewish king. Now perhaps the main reason that the Jews were willing to be happily blind to the truth is because Agrippa followed Judaism. He was known to celebrate every biblical feast, to sacrifice on the altar at all the appropriate times. He respected the priesthood and the sanctity of the temple. Agrippa was quite popular with the Jewish people and all in all thought to be a good and a decent king. Matter of fact, Josephus describes him as a devout Jew known for his generosity to his Jewish subjects. He resided in Jerusalem, at least part-time, and his behavior was generally regarded as mild as opposed to rash. So here's the conundrum. Why did Agrippa go after the Jewish believers so violently? Why did he go after them so violently that he even beheaded James, Jacob, Yaakov, who was the brother of John? And more, why did the Jews, or better Judeans, express glee over him doing this? I mean, we're not told why. However, Bible commentators usually say that it was because of the way's belief in Yeshua as Messiah that he did it and the Jews liked it. But there's no evidence that Agrippa was so religious that this was any issue at all. Or that there was mass persecutions by the mainstream Jews against the believers. All along, it had only been certain religious zealots that wanted to decimate this new rival Jewish sect of Yeshua followers. Not the Jews in general. There's little doubt in my mind that King Herod Agrippa didn't go after all Jewish believers. He only targeted the leadership. This is why we hear of James's execution and the arrest of Peter. Even more, I have little doubt that this consummate politician saw the leadership of the way from political eyes, not religious. These leaders seem to represent some kind of a threat to him. Now the movement of Yeshua followers had grown large enough that it contained Jews of many ilks, including zealots. That is, very reactionary Jews who were, were militant and they used every cause as a platform to fight against what they perceived as injustice. Peter was known as an outspoken leader of the way which made him a natural target. Kings just don't tolerate civil disturbances from their subjects. But the timing of this also suggests that these disturbances may well have been in reaction to this predicted famine. Since Claudius was now in power as the Roman emperor and that is when the famine was predicted to strike. This would also explain the issue of Zor and Sidon when something caused them to get on the wrong side of Agrippa 
Historically, they bought much of their food from the Holy Land and the issue of food was more critical to them at this time of famine. Now notice in verse 3 it says that it was during the season of unleavened bread, that is the festival of matzah, that Agrippa arrested Peter. And then in verse 4 we're told that the king planned on dealing with Peter after Passover. This is a great place for me to make a point that I've made in our festival lectures. I haven't said too much about it in our regular lessons. You see, by this time in history, the terms unleavened bread, matzah, and Passover, Pesach, they've become interchangeable. A Jew could say that it was during the Passover season or during the season of unleavened bread, and for him it meant the same thing. The Jews were well aware that Passover and unleavened bread, Pesach and Matzah, were two entirely different God-ordained biblical feasts. However, since Passover is a one-day feast, and then the week-long Matzah begins the day after Passover, then in common everyday speech, they were spoken of as just one combined event. So some would call this entire festival period Passover. Others would call the entire festival period unleavened bread. And they'd even switch back and forth within the same conversation. And we find our New Testaments doing exactly that thing. In biblical reality, Jews were not required to come to the temple for Passover. This usually surprises people. Jews are not required to go to the temple for Passover. Rather, it's the Feast of Matzah, unleavened bread, at which a pilgrimage to the temple is required. However, if you're going to be in Jerusalem for Matzah, and since the first day of Matzah is a Sabbath day, then you can't travel on it. So the only solution is to do what? Arrive early. You have no other choice. And since the day before the first day of matzah is Passover, then any traveling had to be completed before the start of Passover. So if Jews were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Matzah, they automatically would be there for Passover. Agrippa didn't want to make a fuss. He didn't want to have an execution during these eight days of holy festivities. So he arrested Peter, Peter prior to the start of Passover, and then when both feasts were completed, then he planned on dealing with him. We'll continue with chapter 12 next time.